Welcome to refreshing, energizing business talk. This is Think Tank, conversations in a digital world, presented by SAP in collaboration with Microsoft and Intel. Get ready to hear from industry executives and thought leaders on the best strategies and technologies to drive your business forward in times of uncertainty and accelerate success. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Let me tell you what the buzz is today. I have a quote from the Wikipedia entry for futurists. What in the world's going on? So listen up. This is interesting. Futurology is concerned with three Ps and a W. That is possible, probable, and preferable futures. Plus W is for wild cards, which are low probability, but high impact events should they occur. And in the book, The Left Hand of Darkness, Ursula K. Le Guin distinguished futurality, which she calls the business of profits, clairvoyance, and futurists from novelists whose business is lying. We'll just let that sit there for a second. So what are we talking about today here on Think Tank? From 2000 to January 2020, you know where I'm going with this. The business world has been changing fast, rapidly, in ways we never expected. People have been in business for a while. And then, boom, the pandemic, COVID-19 hit the world, and the rate of change intensified. Uncertainty soared. And here we are today. It's fall of 2020, and uncertainty continues abundantly. Some companies were prepared for some disruption. Never saw anything like this before. Others weren't so prepared, couldn't pivot, couldn't be fluid, couldn't be agile. They may never recover. They may not even survive. But here we go. The caveat, a few forward-thinking companies engaged, futurists, you knew I'd get to it, to predict and assess the trends. So many people wonder, what does a futurist do? Who are they? How do they know so much? What can they do for my company, my business, my organization? How well did futurists who call themselves futurists, how well did they predict the impact of the pandemic in case they didn't predict it already themselves? How can they really help organizations protect themselves for the future or can they? I have three leading futurists, one from Deloitte, two from SAP. We're going to ask them the tough questions today. Who are they? What do they do? How do they do what they do? And how do they get to call themselves futurists? I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome to Think Tank Conversations in the Digital World. And I'm here today with Mike Bechtel at Deloitte and Timo Elliott and Tom Raftery at SAP. So welcome very much. And a shout out to Brad Borkin at SAP, the sponsor of this series and his wonderful team at SAP. So let's get started. Mike Bechtel, happy to have you here and Tell us a little bit about what you do and just a quick overview. What does being a futurist mean to you? Mike, welcome. Thank you kindly. And thanks for having me, Bonnie. Uh, what does a futurist do? Well, uh, you know, that, that, that definition you gave moments ago, three Ps and a W, it, it, it's not far off. We make an effort to understand what's happened to date, uh, what's happening today, and, and draw trend lines towards tomorrow. And, you know, you don't try to predict. The first thing people think futurists do is predict, call the shot, like Babe Ruth pointing to the stands. Uh, that's a mugs game and, and a recipe for disaster. Uh, we like to say we project. We, we look at a cone of possibilities. And uh, in doing so, we separate the preposterous from the possible, from the probable, and uh, importantly, help our companies get to the planable. 
Mike, you just added a couple of words there to my intro because I had possible, probable, and preferable. You added project and preposterous. I like, I think we have to call up Wikipedia, whoever wrote that futurist, futurology entry. Mike, what's your background? Where'd you come from? Did you just wake up one day when you were 14 and say, I think I'll be a futurist when I grow up? How did that happen? (laughs) Well, uh, Bonnie, you know, I started my career in emerging technology. Uh, I worked as an inventor in an R&D lab, uh, building and patenting uh, newfangled this and newfangled that. And I quickly realized that there's a big honking difference between an invention uh, and an innovation. Uh, Namely, inventions uh, turn uh, money into ideas. Uh, Innovations turn ideas into money. And so on the back of that work, I moved into venture capital, where I uh, worked as an investor. And I sat on the other side of the table from these bright-eyed entrepreneurs uh, trying to, quote-unquote, pick winners. And what I realized was any individual newfangled idea might be a winner or a loser. But when you start to see the forest for the trees, you see the trends, right? Back to that cone idea. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really exciting stuff. And so it was on the back of that work, that, that recognition that, that it's the forest that matters, not the individual trees, the, the projection, not the prediction. Uh, I got into futurism as a strategic discipline and, and now lead that function here at Deloitte. Thank you very much, Mike. Great start to our conversation here. And I'm going to go around the table. Two gentlemen I know very well from so many SAP radio shows. Timo Elliott, you're up next. Timo, always a pleasure to see you. And why don't you give us your version of what a futurist is and what's your background? What led you to say, I, Timo Elliott, am a futurist? Welcome. Hi, Bonnie. Hello, everyone. Um, So I am an innovation evangelist for SAP, which is like being a futurist, but slightly more practical. <laughs> in other words, I work with companies on the leading edge of innovation, try and collect all of the lessons learned and help share that so that the rest of us can innovate faster and more successfully. So as the future changes, my job is to help uh, organizations keep up. So how did you get to this point, Timo? What led you? Was there a crystal ball sitting next to your bed one day? And you said, I think I'll look into the future and make my living at it. How did you get there? So my background is actually I'm a trained econometrician, statistical (laughs) economist. So way back in my college days, my job was to find a bunch of dots on a chart and try and draw a trend towards the future that could be used for economic policy. I quickly realized that that's a bit of a mugs game, as Mike said. (laughs) There's only so much you can do. Um, And I actually was uh, very nearly part of the Shell planning department. So Shell Oil, a few decades ago, really pioneered the use of scenario planning as a way to try and successfully navigate the changing currents of the future. And uh, then I joined a technology company. And of course, our job is to help invent the, the future. So my job is to help people use that technology as quickly and successfully as possible. 
I like that. Our job is to help invent the future. That's a very bold statement. And there are a lot of famous quotes, Timo, we're going to have to add yours to the famous quotes about the best way to predict the future is to create it, invent it. We have all kinds of well-known people. So we're going to add your name to that list. I hope that you are honored by that. Let's move one more seat around the table. Tom Raftery is with us. For those of you who are not seeing us on Zoom, and I have the privilege and pleasure of watching my guests think and watching the nuances of how they talk. Tom rocks a hat like nobody I know. So Tom (laughs) promised me, I said, the only way you can come on the show today is if you wear one of your wonderful hats and he's here. So I wish you could all see it. Tom Raftery, enough enough hatting around. Uh, Please introduce yourself in case there's I don't know. There might be one person in the world who doesn't already know Timo. There might be 0.3 quarters of a person who doesn't know Mike. And there might be a half a person who doesn't know you, Tom. So what's your background? Did you wake up one day and say, ah, futurist is in my future? Tom Raftery, welcome. (laughs) I predicted it very young. I was uh, just a baby. No, uh, my background is I'm a biologist, so I'm not a not a, nothing as as fancy as Timo econometrician, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. No, I'm a biologist. Um, I got into science because I always loved science as a kid, and it's it's actually it's it's because I'm very ADD. Uh, I have a very short attention span. And so I always like looking at what's new and shiny. And when I was a kid, science was where it was all at. It was where the fun new stuff was happening. And you could go in, you could become a scientist and discover all this new stuff. And then when I was studying for a a PhD um, in in biology, I got sidetracked. I got distracted because ADD uh, into computers (laughs) and technology. And I set up a software company and we started doing really cool stuff there. And I always wanted to be at the bleeding edge with the company. So we we started developing websites. And this was in the mid 90s. uh, And we were doing um, web fronted databases. So essentially software as a service in kind of the late 90s, early 2000s. And then uh, around mid 2000s, I got bored with that. So I set up a social media consultancy uh, because social media was the new hotness. And I also co-founded a a data center, uh, but it was a hyper energy efficient data center. And I open sourced the development of the data center long before anyone was open sourcing uh, hardware or data centers. For example, everyone was kind of closed sourcer and that stuff at the time. And then uh, in 2008, I moved to Spain for personal rather than professional reasons. uh, And I needed a job that I could do remotely because I didn't speak Spanish. Um, so I needed a job I could do in English and work remotely. So I became an industry analyst. Uh, I got I got asked to join a company called Redmonk. And a lot of the stuff you do in industry analysis is very similar to being a futurist because you're always looking at, you know, to Mike's point, trends and then trying to analyze where things are going. And I always like looking at the future stuff anyway. So I, I did that until uh, early 2016. Uh, and uh, late 2015, a couple of people approached me independently and said, Tom, if you ever think of leaving Red Monk, you know, come and have a chat with us. And I hadn't, but that kind of planted a seed. So early 2016, I said to the guys in Red Monk, I'm out. I wrote a post on my blog saying, leaving Red Monk, talking to a number of companies, nothing signed yet. The window's still open for another while if anyone else wants to get in touch. And several people did. I had some really interesting conversations. And then I joined SAP, was one of the offers I had. Uh, and the role I'm in now, uh, futurist and innovation evangelist. So it's very much, as I said, what Mike said, it's very much, you know, analyzing, or, or as, as Timo said, either joining the dotted lines and, and seeing where things are going. 
Thank you. I think we have some insights now. This is to our audience and to Brad Bork and the sponsor of the series who will put this all together. I think we have insights of what makes a futurist. You could be an econometrist, I think was the word Timo used, something like that with economics in it. You could be a biologist who doesn't speak Spanish like Tom Raftery, or you could be an innovator, (laughs) inventor, innovator, (laughs) inventor, and investor like Mike Bechtel. Did I get all of the qualifications there? So I don't know if I could be a futurist. I'm not a biologist. I speak a little French, no Spanish. I don't study economics and I haven't invested anything, but I think I've innovated radio. So I think we'll, we'll grant me a little, (laughs) a little, a little bone there. Thank you very much. Let's go around the table. I really enjoyed meeting all three of you here in the opening of the show. And I, the, the hallmark of these shows is that we engage the audience with real authentic people. And the three of you certainly are. So I am enjoying this very much. So it's time. Time for the part of the show where I've asked my panelists to send me a quote from a book, a movie, a song, a person famous or almost famous, maybe from that movie too. And let's see what we've got here. So Mike Bechtel at Deloitte has sent us a quote from Marty McFly. Let me read a one, two sentences. Brad wants me to keep this short. Martin Seamus McFly is a fictional character and the protagonist of the Back to the Future trilogy films portrayed by actor Michael J. Fox in 2008. Get this. Marty McFly was selected by Empire Magazine as the 12th greatest movie character of all time. And I'm going to add woohoo because Mike is saying, wow, here's the quote. Okay. I guess you guys aren't ready for that yet, but your kids are going to love it. Mike, how'd you find this one? This is not the usual back to the future quote we get. Where'd you get this one? You know, so much of the work we do, Bonnie, as futurists, hits the audience in a way that leads them, for those of, those of our audience who can see, kind of wrinkling their nose, furrowing their brow and saying, I'm not sure if that's clever or crazy. <laughs> and I thought about that scene from Back to the Future where you know Marty's up on stage, he begins to introduce rock and roll, right, to the 1955 set. And then he takes it full on to Van Halen, heavy metal, shredding guitar. And he crosses that boundary from clever to crazy in the mind of the 1955er. And I thought, isn't that futurism in a nutshell? That, that willingness to challenge orthodoxy, but, but not to pull it so far uh, to Timo's point where, where you, lose, you lose the audience and the ability to think of yourself in, 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 in this case, your kid's shoes. Thank you very much. I love the quote. It's now my new favorite quote, Mike, from Back to the Future. We always get the one where we're going. We don't need roads. We right. won't need roads. That's Doc Brown to Marty McFly. See, I know a little bit about movie quotes. Timo Elliott has sent us a very interesting quote from an unlikely source to make us smile. Put that together. You'll know where I'm going with this. John Kenneth Galbraith, OC, 1908 to 2006, a.k.a. Ken was a Canadian-American economist, diplomat, public official, and intellectual. Do you all notice how they put their bios together differently than we do today? We have long sentences about what we do, and they just encapsulate every little role they had in one line, and you know so much, I think. He was a leading proponent of 20th century American liberalism, and his books on economic topics were bestsellers from the 1950s through the 2000s, may still be today. Here's the quote. Listen up. This is a good one. The only function of economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable. Timo, (laughs) I read that and I was hysterical. You got to tell me, how'd you find it? And what in the world does that have to do with our topic today? 
Uh, so Dan, I'm an economist, so he, he's a household name for me. Um, and it really gets to this theme that we see a lot when we're talking about the future in that uh, forecasts are useless, but forecasting is an essential part of every business plan. So I thought this was a great quote to indicate that. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Do you study Galbraith, by the way? Timo, is, is he one of your... your uh, <laughs> we did a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> a long time ago. There you go. Thank you very much. And let's go to Tom Raftery. Thomas picked a safe choice as a futurist because this is a cool quote. William Ford Gibson, born in 1948. Oh, he's still with us. Also a Canadian, American Canadians. I'm not sure which foot is on which side of the border. Speculative fiction writer and essayist, widely credited with pioneering the science fiction subgenre known as cyberpunk. And guess what? He created the term cyberspace. And he said that uh, he explored, explored the effects of technology, cybernetics, and computer networks on humans. Everybody get this? A combination of low life and high tech. I think that's a quotable moment. Here's the quote. The future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. Tom, talk to me about this. Yeah, it's... Um... It, it, it's something that I think applies very much to the kind of things we do as, as futurists, because very often what we're doing is we're looking around to see what's happening in any particular space. And we find some little nugget that's there. And then we say, OK, that that's going to be a thing. And, you know, if, if you think about, let's say, the automotive industry, for example, huge changes happening there right now. The future is already here. We have uh, cars now that are capable of level three autonomy. We're going to get to level four and level five. We have electric vehicles. They're quite common. They're not everywhere, but they're, they're quite common at this point. Uh, so the future is already here. Uh, and you can think of lots of other examples. I mean, even if you, if you go to, uh, we, we tend to think of lots of things as, as being here and ubiquitous, but the internet's only, only ubiquitous for half the world. Um, electricity, running water, these kind of things, for us, we take them for granted, but they're not ubiquitous. So just that, everything uh, can be uh, ubiquitous and will be in time, but it's those very little nuggets that we look for as futurists to say that that's going to be a thing. Thank you very much. And to that point, Tom, I have a radio series I host called technology revolution, the future of now. And I always say, if you say the future is already here, that was yesterday's future. Today's mm. future hasn't happened yet. True. We're going to make it happen. Let's do it right or let's do it well. So that's that's my approach about that. I'm getting nods from the panel. Thank you very yeah. much, gentlemen. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. I sit honored here. Okay, this is the part of the show. We've had the bios. We've had the quotes. Now we're going to get down to the serious business of our topic today. And by the way, the official topic is the role of futurists, helping organizations plan a path forward. And I think the key word is plan there. That's what we're trying to figure out. What in the world do you do for companies? So, Mike, I'm going to go to your statement number one here. I'm just going to read a little bit and ask you to take about two minutes and expand it for us. Unpack it, if you will, as I say on the new shows. And then we're going to go around the table. I'll ask Mr. Timo Elliott if he agrees or disagrees. And then I'll ask Mr. Tom Raftery the same thing. I'm getting formal calling you, Mr. If anybody has a doctor in front of their name, now's the time to correct me. Mike Bechtel <laughs> said the following, wide-eyed optimists will tell you that the future is clear, transparent, and entirely predictable. Cynics and skeptics, on the other hand, see the future as opaque 
unknowable. They're both wrong. Ha! Okay, I had to have that. Mike Bechtel, <laughs> great opening statement. Talk to me. What does this all mean? And then we'll see what Timo and Tom have to say. Go ahead, Mike. Uh, no, sure, Bonnie. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I, I love Timo and, and Tom's experience with this, but when, when you dare to carry the word futurist on a business card, the audience that you're engaging <clears throat> typically falls into two two extremes. They either think, boy, that's the coolest thing ever, or they think, who's this clown, right? <laughs> and what I would tell you is uh, the optimists expect you to be a wizard. The skeptics, it, it, nothing you could do, right, would, would change their mind. And so the nuance, it's not transparent or opaque, okay, the future. I like to say it's translucent, okay? Translucent, a nerd word, but the right word it's about shadows and shapes, like a marbly window on a front door or, or a bathroom, right? You can see something, you just can't see all the things, the details. Um, shadows and shapes, in, in my experience, are enough to be useful to corporate strategy, right? If you can see headwinds and tailwinds, back to some of our earlier comments around, uh, Timo talked about uh, uh, for, you know, a forecast being worthless, but forecasting being valuable. Um, a portfolio of potential futures is a very useful input to corporate strategy because you want to steer into the tailwinds and avoid headwinds wherever you can. Very interesting. Let's go around the table. Timo, agree or disagree with any or all of what Mike said? You're up. Go ahead, Timo. I agree. Uh, Great to have a radar to help you through the fog, but At the same time, the bigger problem is that in most organizations are like gigantic tankers. And the problem is less about trying to decide which way they'll go. And more the problem is as they turn the wheel in the desired direction, nothing actually happens. So the the agility ultimately is a real gap between where people are today and these plans for the future. Thank you. Tom Raftery, join us. Agree or disagree with either or both? Yeah, no, with both. Uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to agree violently with them. Um, I think. <laughs> I haven't heard that in a while. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Mike's point about uh, things being translucent is, is well made. And I think one of the biggest problems we have as futurists is not saying what's going to happen, but when it's going to happen. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's very obvious to go back to my earlier, earlier example. It's very obvious that, you know, electric vehicles will be the norm. It's what everyone will go for in the future, uh, but just when they'll overtake internal combustion engine cars as, you know, the, 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 the majority sales in any particular country, that's, that's, that's hard, a lot harder to predict and a lot harder to get right. It's going to happen, but when? Thank you very much. Let's go back to Mike Bechtel briefly. Anything you want to say back to your co-panelists here who pretty much are in agreement with you? What do you think, Mike? I mean, if I'm going to be on the receiving end of, of Tom's violence, then I'm glad it's violent because that, that was the most gracious uh, uh, affirmation or violent non-affirmation. It was wonderful. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> I appreciate that. Timo, I'm looking at your statement number one, and let's go to this one. I think you have some interesting things to say. I'll read a little bit, then expand it. Take about two minutes, and we'll go. Tom will be next, and then Mike. Everybody gets a turn. So Timo says, eh, he's told me before, in the past, before the show, the future is not what it used to be. For various structural reasons, change is more likely to be more exponential 
than in the past, but human brains are not equipped to understand exponential trends. And I'm just going to say, oh my, go ahead, Timo, tell us more. We tend to think about change as linear. And so, uh, and our brains are used to doing things linearly. And in the past, things did change in more of a linear fashion, but now I said mentioned the structural aspects. Because we're in an era where anything that is new and is known by one person can be spread to the rest of the globe within minutes, the speed of the future has been accelerating. Um, it's a truism. We talk about it all the time. But it's one of the biggest problems for us to adapt and understand the future is, uh, or Bill Gates quote, uh, we overestimate things that will occur in the next two years and underestimate the change that will occur in the next 10. This notion of exponential change. So we go to somebody and say, hey, we need to change. And people say, sure, I can see that coming. But, you know, do we really have to do it now? And then suddenly, because everything accelerating, uh, by the time you do go to make that change, it's almost too late or somebody else has done it before you and you're now struggling to catch up. Thank you. Let's go around the table. Let's see if we have any violence here. Anybody just tuning in, don't get scared. It's a violent agreement we had, which is a good thing. That's like, I agree, a million million percent or what he said, what she said. So Tom Rafter, we agree or disagree with Mr. Elliott. Go ahead. I'm going to have to bring up my previous violent quote again. I'm oh, afraid. dear. Here we go. <laughs> no, it, it's very true. I mean, if you look, there are graphs available, and I can't obviously flash up a graph on screen here now to, to show this point, but you can see graphs of adoption curves of different technologies over time. And the adoption yeah. curves typically are in kind of an S shape. Uh, and that S shape is getting steeper all the time. You know, it took, I, I don't remember the exact numbers now, but the amount of years it took for people to adopt the television vision was, you know, decades uh, as, as a technology, whereas smartphones was years, things like, uh, I won't say Twitter, something more recent, Instagram, for example, the, the, the time to get to a million users was in months. So those kinds of technology uh, adoption curves are getting really, really, really short. And to Timo's point exactly, that whole, uh, you know, two years versus 10 years thing and people saying, oh, yeah, maybe I should think about that now and it's already too late. That is, that is definitely a thing. Thank you. It's a thing. Okay, let's go around. Mike Bechtel, what do you think? Is it a thing? It's, it's very much a thing. Uh, I happen to study uh, anthropology as an undergrad, and we, we spent a lot of energy on this concept of culture shock, right? When, when, when one culture meets another, it's, it's foreign, it's, it's weird, it's, it, it challenges my deeply held beliefs and orthodoxies and customs, yada, yada, yada. Um, there's a thing called future shock. And part of, part of future shock is, is, and Timo and Tom hit it, it's that it's accelerating, right? From 1945 to say 75, computers were the size of a room and you needed a lab coat and a PhD and a name like Milton to, to work it. And then you had this thing, Moore's Law, right? Which we've all heard about, and you know, it gets twice as cheap and twice as fast. But what's interesting is the next phase, right? Computers in offices, right? Desktops, click and type. That wasn't another 40-year run, right? That was a 20-year run. And then the internet, teens and grandmothers buying Beanie Babies, that was a 10-year run. And then it's a five-year run with devices in our pockets and, and the internet of things kind of 
came and maybe not fizzles, but loses the spotlight in two years. And so, yeah, that, that Al Bartlett lecture on the, from, uh, you know, this great old professor in a bolo tie who talks about our inability to think about the exponential. He's right. And it's going to speed up. It's not going to slow down. Mm-hmm. Interesting. We got some affirmation there. Timo, this was your topic. Anything you want to say back to these gentlemen? Well, I'd like to emphasize that has this has real practical offense, uh, practical consequences. So when I was a kid, first generation to grow up with uh, computers in schools and so on. And for decades, we knew what we wanted to do with the computers, but the computers just didn't have the power to enable us to do it. Now, I think the gating factor is very different. I don't think we've even done a good job of using the technology that we had a decade ago. Um, The barriers are no longer technological per se. They're about our adoption of that technology. And that has very different consequences about how organizations need to react. Thank you very much. Very powerful, powerful thoughts here. I was just telling Brad what a fabulous panel you all are because you're smart, you're very engaging, you're savvy, and you're just right on your toes. That's what we look for as real people, real deal smart people. So I'm, we're just enjoying this very much, the conversation. Tom Raftery, you're up next. Tom, I'm looking at statement number two. Uh, there's a, a French term for this. I'll read the English first. Everything old is new. The French term I love is plus a change, plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more they stay the same. You say we're seeing the same issues assailing companies over and over again. I'm not going to give the examples in your statement, but you certainly can. And I work for one of those companies in your list. So Tom Raftery, what's this? Everything old is new. Talk to us, please. Sure. Yeah. I'm talking about how companies are being disrupted. So we see we've seen in the past companies like uh, Nokia be disrupted by the 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 arrival of the smartphones. Uh, You have that famous, I think it was the cover of Fortune magazine where they showed in 2007, the CEO of Nokia with a flip phone up to his ear. And the the headline on the front of the the Fortune magazine was, uh, can anyone anyone take down Nokia or words to that effect? Basically, the the, the smartphone king or the, the mobile phone king or the cell phone king. And the, that very year, it was 2007, that very year, Apple launched the iPhone. And the, the following year, 2008, Android was launched. And that was the end of Nokia because they couldn't adapt to the new environment. Uh, and we see similar kind of stories with Blockbuster. And, and, you know, there are a myriad examples of companies that couldn't change their modus operandi. Maybe they had a sunk investment in, a, in an existing technology. They were the incumbent and the new disruptors came up and just blew them away. There, there are myriad examples and it's happening again today and it continues to happen. And it's the same old story over and over and over again, we see incumbents uh, taking out or being taken out, sorry, by, by startups. And very often it's because uh, the, you have that adoption curve that we discovered earlier, talked about earlier, and you have uh, sunk investments in and, and sunk intellectual investments and financial investments in the existing technology that the incumbents don't want to throw away. Interesting. Let's go around the table. Mike Bechtel, who is nodding vociferously, silently, (laughs) vociferously. Mike, you're sitting next to Tom, whether you knew it or not. Mike, what do you think? Agree or disagree? Speak, please. Um, We, we, you know, we have a a, a chain of agreement that is likely to be broken at some point, but not yet. 
Um, <laughs> so, so Tom, I, I agree with you, man. I think that you've got these exponential changes, these hockey sticks of future shock, but the tempo accelerates, but the song remains the same, right? Not that we need to bring Led Zeppelin lyrics into this, but the one of the playbooks that we keep seeing around these disruptions are, are businesses that have no business being in your business, putting you out of business, right? Hmm. These little, these little pesky startups and it, it's not new, right? Whether, whether you get academic and you talk about Clayton Christensen and the innovators dilemma or or you go way back, like 1849, the gold rush, right? Smart people panned for gold. Uh, some won, some lost. You know who really won? The disruptive guy on the side who said, I'm going to build a platform business that sells shovels and pans to these yahoos, right? And, and think about that. Right, the the person who saw the macro trend and profited from the from the big picture rather than looking for a pebble, isn't that the story of Uber, of Facebook, of of these these platform disruptors who basically said, "I see what you're cooking, and I'm going to build a business that lets all of you cook at scale." Fascinating. Look at all the recent history we have to call upon for for a conversation like this. Timo, what do you think? It's deja vu all over again. Yep. Um, uh, Yogi Berra, I think. The, uh, so yep. as Mike mentioned, uh, Clayton Christensen, the Innovator's Dilemma, wrote the book on this. Interestingly enough, I do believe that because that book is so well known, has become a, an institution among businesses, I think this happens less often than it used to in the past. Certainly in the technology sector where these ideas are extremely well known, there's been, um, ever since that book came out, it hasn't been as operative because people go, whoa, we're about to fall into this dilemma. <laughs> yeah. let's, let's avoid it by um, doing things like, um, you know, cutting into our own business with our own innovations. Thank you very much. Let's go back to Tom. This was your topic. What do you think? Anything you want to add or subtract? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm going to disagree. Just, just to be, just to be, just for the sake of it. Contrarian. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we need a contrarian statement. Mike is uh, saying, "What? I missed that opportunity." I'm just trying to figure out how Tom's going to disagree with his own premise. Two comments. No. Go for it. Wait for know. it, brother. Wait for it. Tom Rathbury. I'm going to disagree with with Timo. Okay. Uh, yeah, my colleague. Um, I don't think people have taken it on board enough, or at least in some industries. Um, for example, if I go back to the, the automotive example we, we, I talked about earlier, uh, and we, we look at the, the rise of electric vehicles uh, that I referenced earlier as well, it's beginning, becoming a theme. Um, we're seeing the, the startup that, that Mike talked about, in this case, Tesla, you know, uh, 15 years now, Tesla has been producing electric vehicles, maybe not quite 15, about 13. I'm not sure exactly when they brought out the first Roadster. And they were dismissed as a startup, you know, as right as, as Mike said. The large other, the large incumbent vehicle manufacturers, the Volkswagens, the Mercedes, the Toyotas, the Hyundais, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they're still not 
well, well, maybe with the possible exception of Volkswagen, they're still not building EVs at scale. And I can understand why. It's because they've got this massive investment and this massive IP around producing internal combustion engines. So why would they? But the thing is, the technology around EVs has come to a point where it is very soon going to be cheaper to, to buy an EV. The performance in an EV is better, et cetera, et cetera. So suddenly they're going to be in big trouble when the world flips and it's going to happen really soon and they won't have the time to, or the money to invest in building up an EV infrastructure for themselves. And I, 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 this is a prediction. I confidently predict that some of the major car companies that we know today will not exist in 10 years' time. And what car do you drive? I drive an EV. <laughs> From? Nissan. A big traditional car company. Indeed. I just found out recently that my beloved 370Z convertible, Nissan, stopped making the convertibles as of 2020. Oh. So to buy a, and I have one, it's only 33,000 miles. I bought it used. I, I bought it two years ago. Who drives anymore? As I say at the close of my shows, I'm getting three months to the gallon. How are you doing? <laughs> uh, but, but seriously, I, I like to replace those cars. And this is one of the, this only the second I've had five Zs, uh, which started out as Datsun and then we're Nissan. So there was the, the, the 280, the whatever, blah, blah, blah. The point is that I realized if I want to buy the current last model of the convertible used, if I want to buy it next year, it would cost me $63,000 to buy Ouch. <laughs> Whoa. US dollars, that's what they're asking for the 2019 convertible, which is the last one because apparently it wasn't popular and it wasn't making enough money for Nissan. But I love it and I wouldn't be caught in any other cars. And now I have to <laughs> I have to pay vintage car prices. Anyway, never mind, never mind. So much to talk about. Mike Bechtel, I'm looking at statement number four. This is interesting. So everybody listen up. Mike says inventors chase novelty, entrepreneurs chase profitability. Innovators chase both. And he says, new and improved. I'm going to let you expand that for us, Mike Bechtel, because this is another good one. And let's see what your co-panelists have to say. Go ahead, Mike. What are we talking about? Okay. All right. So this this is my spidey sense tells me that we may be get a little bit of disagreement out of this one because this this is uh, this is an untested theory waiting for the idea. <laughs> so Timo and Tom, get ready. Um, the the basic idea is this, having grown up early in my career working with inventors, right? Lab coat, R&D, patent chasing types. What I realized was they got their energy from, from the novelty, from contributing something new to the universe, right? What is a PhD, but adding a little to that bubble of the corpus of human knowledge? Great. Um, you know, the suits in the corner office would say, yeah, but they're a cost center. Right now, on the flip side, when I worked as an investor, as a VC, I worked with a lot of salt of the earth entrepreneurs. I would call them ADD entrepreneurs or cowboy entrepreneurs or pick, pick your name. But these cats were typically completely uninterested in novelty. They're interested in money and not for status, for freedom. Right. It was the sort of cigar of like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. <laughs> right as long as they made money so they could keep doing what they want to do. Here's the punchline. At the intersection of that little Venn diagram, right, lies the old 1960s detergent mantra of new and improved, right? The innovator 
invents in pursuit of money. And that's how you get sustainable creative change, right? It's new, but it's improved as measured in bucks. And so as a futurist, I'm fascinated with, with capital I innovators, uh, not in the hero worship, like, oh, they do no wrong way, but because I think they draw the, ne- the neatest trend line to tomorrow because what they're cooking isn't just newfangled. Um, mm. It's got dollars behind it, and those dollars are going to keep those, those inventions going. Thank you very much. Let's go around the table. Timo Elliott, what do you think? So honestly, I think about, I spend about 90% of my time on this particular issue. There's a big difference between possibility and viability. The hardest thing about innovation is actually doing it. So there's a difference between the ideas and the things that are possible and actually putting it into production is much, much harder because organizations have existing infrastructures, existing cultures, existing technology, and it's really hard to take even the best idea and actually get it to work in that environment. And um, I think it's vastly underestimated just how important that aspect is in successful innovation. Thank you very much, Tom Raftery. Join me. What do you think? Yeah, so... When I was an industry analyst, I concentrated on energy and sustainability. And sustainability is a a key word here, not the kind of sustainability where we're talking about climate change, but rather Mm -hmm. uh, the sustainability of a business or an organization or, you know, that kind of thing, financial sustainability, if you want to call it that. So for any invention uh, to make its mark, to be able to stay, to have staying power, to be sustainable, it has to be sustainable. It has to be able to make money for the people who make it or it won't be sustainable. So I guess financial sustainability is what I'm talking about. So back to Mike's point, yeah, it has to be at the intersection of novelty and money right there. Novelty and money. Very interesting. Uh, Mike, anything you want to say back to them? Mike? (laughs) No, I, I, Timo, an opportunity to, to give you a, a, a violin agreement, digital hug. Um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, ideas. We used to joke uh, in our VC work that we had novelty fatigue because the number of, of earnest, maybe it's because we're Midwest, Midwest shop, you get a lot of earnestness, but the amount of Midwest earnest, like I have something that could change the world. You're like, yeah, so did the last three, right? Uh, <laughs> Get in the, line. <laughs> right. That, so, Timo, I would just say I'm vibing with you on the chasm between dream it and do it. And, and frankly, it's where big organizations still have that advantage, right? They might be, they might be lumbering tankers, but they got a lot of get stuff dunnery in their, in their, in their tanker. There were so many quotable things you just said, Mike Beckett. I, I wish I was still tweeting during a live show because I would have just been bang. All of you, just amazing. I will just give you all a, a quick tip of a show you might enjoy. It was originally done on AMC, uh, Netflix streams, and it's called Halt and Catch Fire, which may, if you're in tech, you would know what that means. Uh, yeah. And it's about, it's a fic- fiction a drama about people who started, who created the first PC, 
which they called The Giant, and in competition with real companies with IBM, and then the first idea for the web, for the internet. And there's a wonderful scene, and Mike, it involves VCs, investors, investment companies, and and gurus and gamers, the, the rise of the gaming industry. It's a very compelling drama, terrific characters. I think there were four seasons I binged for three weeks and it's done and I miss it already. I cried at the end. But what I want to say, there's a scene where somebody's talking about the web in this company called Comet and a 14-year-old girl is designing designing and, and cataloging the internet just because she doesn't want to go to school and her dad says do something. Fascinating. It Just the look, but it's it's really based in what really happened. So there's a scene where somebody says, our, our Rover, our company called Rover isn't doing so well. There's a company out there doing something about the web. It's called Yahoo. What? Yahoo? Yeah, what? <laughs> and they're sitting around the table saying, yeah, what? And this, no, it couldn't be a cup name. What? And the reaction is so telling. So if you have a chance, just take a peek. It's it's worth the investment of time. Now it's time for the crystal ball. We're going to start with Mike Bechtel. I'm going to give you each 60 seconds. Let's go around the table real beat, beat fast. And let's focus our predictions on the future of futurists. Will you all be around to help companies and why should a company, big, small, a profit, nonprofit, why should they hire a futurist? Can you really do anything for them other than have great conversations with me? <laughs> Mike, Mike Bechtel, 60 seconds, you're up, then Timo, then Tom. Mike, go. <laughs> One minute in defense of my profession. Yes. So, um, <laughs> the, yes. So on the micro, this is a, this is a discipline on the upswing right? Uh, you know, a city on the make, you know, pick your Upton Sinclair language. It's that. Um, the, I think the key to avoid an air of, uh, of charlatanism, right? To inoc- inoculate all of us against uh, snake oil, right? Mm. Is to position it less as uh, your great quote, Bonnie, about novelists, you know, being, being uh, fibbers or liars and yep. to, to, to root it not in prognostication and alchemy, right? To root it instead as a strategic discipline, right? Futurism as a strategic discipline in its own right that doesn't look to displace strategy, right? Strategists in any organization are key. What we're saying is that your incremental, inertial, desired future, however well-researched with math and science and the rest, has to be done in light of that, that portfolio of the possible, that matrix of maybes, those black swans, the COVIDs, right? And so, so I think as a member of the strategy team, futurists are here to stay. In incremental, inertial, desired future. Wow. Yeah, I did yourself on that one, kid. Timo <laughs> Elliott, you're up. 60 seconds. What do you see in the crystal ball for future? Oh, he's got one. Let me see. Uh... This could just be a silent prediction. Go ahead, Timo. The future is cloudy. (laughs) Hold it up again. I want to get a picture of it. Hold it up one more time. There you go. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay, what's your prediction, Timo? Uh, so I'm going to go with a, with a quote, Ari de Gauss, I think it is, a pioneer of scenario planning at Shell. I mentioned I, I worked at Shell. The ability to learn faster than your competition may be the only sustainable competitive advantage. And he said that in 1988, over 30 years ago. So, you know, back to the future. Um, 
So I'm really going to echo Mike's point. I think where futurism can help is to help you learn faster than your competitors by looking into the future and those shapes and shadows. Oh, shapes and shadows. Another quotable there. Tom Rafter, you get the final crystal ball prediction. 60 seconds. What do you see? Is it cloudy or what might be? Or is it sharp? (laughs) Go ahead, Tom. All the great stuff has been taken by Timo and Mike Adamy. Um, yeah, no, the, the, the future is bright. I, I got to wear shades. Um, we are, we're definitely here to stay. Um, it is more important because, as we discussed earlier, of those adoption curves becoming steeper and steeper. It's more and more important for companies to be aware of what's coming down the line so that they can take action to try and meet it and work with it rather than be blindsided by it. Um, in 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 my role, I assume it's the same for Mike and Timo. In my role, I don't just uh, educate our internal teams and what's happening. I also uh, educate our partners and our customers and our customers' leadership teams as well. So it's it's not just about being uh, being being educating ourselves. It's also helping our our like I say our partners and our customers. And I think that's that 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 helps bring the ecosystem up not just ourselves, but our entire uh, ecosystem of, of partners and customers and gets everyone ready for what's coming. Thank you. I have a predict. Timo, go ahead. Just like one, you started with possible, probable, and preferable. And yeah. one thing we didn't talk about, but is clearly very important, is uh, to the extent that we can help steer everybody towards the preferable as well. I mean, one thing we didn't touch on anywhere, but we probably should, is just the, the moral and ethical aspects of all this. Out of all of these choices, as we talk to organizations and try and help them make those right choices, we have to steer them towards the ones that make a better world for all of us. And Timo, that leads to my prediction. I predict with great knowledge and preference that you all come back for part two with me very, very soon. And a little birdie told me in a chat here on Zoom that we're going to make that happen. So I will enjoy that prediction being fulfilled very, very soon. I, I can't thank the three of you enough for just being real, real authentic, real deal. So many quotable moments we could do 10 blogs on what you all said. Uh, And I really appreciate your coming to the table with enthusiasm and for making futurists sound like a really cool profession. I think maybe we'll, maybe forget about the data scientists. Let's everybody go out and be futurists. That's the new hot profession there. So Mike Bechtel, you're new to me and radio uh, with me. And I'm so appreciative that you took a chance and joined us. Really appreciate it. And shout out to your colleagues at Deloitte and Timo Elliott, such a pleasure, wonderful and Tom Raftery just, I I said to Tom, you can't come on without the hat. And he's nodding, tipping his hat to me. A big shout. Everybody give applause to Brad Borkin and his team at SAP for coming up with the idea of Think Tank Radio. What a great idea. I've enjoyed this so much. And I want to say to everybody, just get in the Think Tank and think about where we're all going and let's make it a better future. I rest my case. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. Everybody wave. Bye-bye from Think Tank. Conversations in the digital world. Bye. Thanks again for tuning into Think Tank. Conversations in a digital world. Presented by SAP in collaboration with Microsoft and Intel. Keep the conversation going by tweeting your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAP Radio. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again on the Business Channel next time.